0: I'm Caleb Zachron, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Environmental Studies. Today I'm speaking with Jeff D. Colgan, Richard Holbrook Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science and Director of the Climate Solutions Lab at the Watson Institute for Public and International Affairs at Brown University. His new book, Partial Hegemony, Oil Politics and International Order, from Oxford University Press, offers a new framework for considering the nature and change of international order. Jeff examines international relations through the prism of oil politics, with a particular focus on the oil crisis of 1973. Partial Hegemony is a vital book for understanding the broader political and historical context informing contemporary international order and the challenge of addressing climate change. Hi, Jeff. It's great to have you on the New Books Network.
1: Hi, Caleb. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Of course. So as standard with New Books Network interviews, the first question I'd like to ask if you can just tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book.
1: Sure thing. Yeah, I um, have been a political scientist now for, I guess, 12 years since PhD and I wrote my first uh, book based on my dissertation uh, called Petroaggression When Oil Causes War. So I've been obsessed with uh, oil and energy politics for a very long time now. Uh, And in this book, I really wanted um, to take what I had learned, not only with my first book, but but in all the research since then, um, about the last century's worth of oil politics and oil history and um, learn from it, uh, you know, reflect based uh, on that empirical history like what could it tell us about IR more generally, theoretically, what does this tell us about international order and how it works, Uh, and uh, I grew kind of really dissatisfied with uh, some of our existing kind of models for how international work uh, order works um, and and. then, you know, so in the book, I say, look, I the, the move here is to go from the particular, meaning oil politics, to the abstract, meaning the IR theory, and then back again to some other particular uh, subject matters uh, like climate change or peacekeeping or uh, nuclear politics, you know, lots of different things that we can apply that theory to. So that's basically how I got there.
0: What are some of the standard IR theory models and what are the the issues with these standard models?
1: Yeah, so if you think about international order as a set of uh, principles, rules and institutions about how um, states and other uh, actors interact with each other. uh, So these are sort of loosely speaking rules uh, uh, and uh, of how we get along. Um, and then the kind of standard, you know, IR-101 model, uh, uh, crudely put, is to say, look, you know, when does the order change? It changes when there's a big war like World War II, uh, and out of that war you get a winner uh, who we call the hegemon, uh, like the United States in 1945, who gets to then sort of set the rules for the post-war era and that lasts until the next big war, uh, and that's basically how you know history moves. Uh, and that's, uh, of course, I'm I'm very crudely characterizing the the theory, but that's basically the gist of IR theory. And I got thinking a lot about how that's just too simple. It kind of washes out so much of what's interesting about international politics uh, because. The international order we're living in today uh, in 2022 is very different than the one that existed in 1946 say uh, and a lot of things uh, have happened because there's kind of constantly when we think about international order some parts of it that are changing and other parts of it that are not changing that are that are continuous over time uh, and so rather than treat it as one big thing, international order that is, you know, the liberal order that is or is not uh, uh, changing, um, in fact, we should be disaggregating and starting to think about it in different ways. Uh, and that, I think, is also born out of our times on some level because we had in 2016 the election of Donald Trump uh, and the Brexit uh, uh, votes and a bunch of other things that got people thinking hard about. You know, is the liberal order coming to an end, uh, so to speak? And uh, of course, the, the the pages of journals like Foreign Affairs and Foreign Policy, et cetera, are just filled with people on both sides of this saying, you know, yes or no, and for these reasons. And to me, I think that debate is fundamentally intractable if we think about international order as just one thing, right? That that it's not. You know, in reality, it's actually made up of a whole lot of different parts that I call subsystems. So that's the the gist of the book.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about this idea that you put forward that you call subsystems theory and how subsystems theory differs from some of these other ideas that you've already talked a little bit about a little bit, but some of these other notions of international, how international relations functions?
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. So if you think about many um, theories of international order, like, say, John Eikenberry's uh, famous one or John Mearsheimer just wrote a book on international order, both of them think about international order at the systemic level, right, that it's like sort of one big overarching umbrella of things. Uh, and that's, that's a, you know, conventional way of thinking about it. And there's some, there's some utility to doing that. but. Um, Another way that IR scholars have thought about it is, uh, especially in the 80s, there was this idea of regime theory where uh, a bunch of people like Bob Cohen and Steve Krasner and others, uh, Susan Strange said, you know, we should be thinking about um, international order in terms of issue areas, right? So issue areas are things like trade or finance or oil. Those are all you know, uh, uh, issue areas, and then we can think about you know how, how the dynamics of, of each of those issue areas. And so, what I argue in this book is that uh, regime theorists were were on the right track, but they didn't go far enough. That they need to disaggregate one more level down, because within those issue areas, like say oil, there are uh, specific subsystems uh, that revolve around um, kind of key questions of governance. And uh, I'll, I'll give you an example in just a sec, but uh, in, in oil, there are two different issue areas. And so you could have change in one of them and not change in the other. And that turns out to be really important because if you're arguing at the issue area level of like, has change happened or not, it's intractable. You can't get anywhere because it's, it's both yes and no at the same time. And so I'm saying, look, let's get down to the level of where um, these governing questions really happen. And in oil, I think the two that matter are, uh, on one hand, an oil production subsystem, which is how much oil should we produce and where do we produce it, right? That's the basic question, the heart of that. And that's been a question for a long time. Um, That's the question that OPEC tries to answer on a sort of weekly basis, right? And lots of other actors, you know, Exxon is in on it in the fracking industry and Russia and all these other players, they're all part of a subsystem, a whole series of actors that are orbiting around that central question of how much oil should we produce and where to produce it, right? But there is also in oil, a second big question that often goes kind of unnoticed until something happens, uh, which is the oil security subsystem. And that the core question there is, how should the oil fields of the world be distributed politically around the world, right? And um, or, you know, another way of putting that is who should have sovereignty, who should have jurisdiction over each oil field? And often that's quite stable until something like uh, 1990, Iraq invades Kuwait and starts to move towards Saudi Arabia and wants to be uh, an You know, to seize a lot of oil uh, fields and potentially be um, a quasi monopolist in the world oil market because they would have control over so much, uh, which the US and the UK thought about for all of about 48 hours and decided this is, this is no good right George Bush comes to the public and says this will not stand. Uh, And then he puts together an international coalition and uh, and pushes Iraq back uh, and and liberates Kuwait if we want to call it that. um, the point here is that this subsystem, this oil security subsystem, really matters a lot because, and great powers are willing to go to war over it because um, it potentially threatens the whole market structure of the world market for oil, right? The, and the market for oil is is quite integrated globally. Uh, it turns out to be very cheap to, to to transport oil around the world. And so... The price matters everywhere. Price effects in one country is going to translate. It's going to ripple around the whole world. And so um, having access to a stable supply of oil is vitally important for uh, both the economy and the military of, of all modern nations. And so um, having access to oil really matters. And that means great powers are willing to go to war for it. Uh, and, um, and so this oil's security subsystem also turns out to be functionally really important. And just to finish the thought, and then I, I really will draw uh, a moment of breath, but uh, what we see, if you look back over the, the, you know, the last century or so, the really big shift, if we want to think about it, is in the 1970s, that pivotal decade where one of these subsystems, the oil production one, changes dramatically. uh, Where OPEC comes to its day, we get the big oil crisis in 1973, we get a really transformational moment where um, the oil producers like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Iraq, they nationalize their oil industry, they jack up the price of oil by a factor of four, they just have a huge shift. And that has massive consequences politically and economically that reverberate around the globe for years to come. But on the other subsystem, the oil security subsystem, you actually have much less change. In fact, you could call it continuity, because you have these kind of oil for security arrangements between the United States and many of the same actors, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, the other Persian Gulf monarchies. So you get, you know, continuity there that um you would be blind to if you just think about oil as one issue area it's only when you see it as two different subsystems that you can see that there's change in one and not in the other
0: yeah i I want to uh you know to ask you more about this uh pivotal decade in oil politics but i think uh, before jumping into that you know you provide a, a great sort of history of 20th century oil politics and sort of beginning uh, you begin that history with uh, the British Navy's transfer from coal to oil. So, I was wondering if you could just talk about the role of oil and just the process of colonial uh, reach and imperialism uh, and how that even, that prehistory, set the stage for what would happen 60 years later.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, in, in the early part of the 20th century, around you know, 1910, 11, 12, 13, the British figure out the British Navy figures out that the the you know physical properties of oil are just so much better than coal that they have to start fueling their Navy um, because of it, and the world starts to shift its whole transportation system and its military system uh, because it's you know soon it's tanks and jet fighters and all the rest that are all powered by oil um, that the the whole global. Modern transportation system is based off of oil. And that's still the case now, even though, you know, gradually we're we're starting to think about electric vehicles. But for the last hundred plus years, um, it's been essential. In this time, the first half of the 20th century, empires are not dead. They are, in fact, the dominant form of political organization on the planet, right? This is a hugely, you know, imperial period. And the two subsystems that I talked about about oil production and oil security in this period, they're sort of overlapping and they go hand in hand because empires form the kind of political backbone of both uh, of these things. It it, it provides the sort of overarching structure for the British to be in the Middle East and uh, either actively ruling some of these uh, uh, petrostates or you know, doing it somewhat indirectly, but still, you know, pulling the strings behind the throne. Uh, and then, uh, sort of crucially, after World War II, we get to a, a decolonization period, meaning that the Western uh, European countries that have had all these colonies, far-flung colonies all around the world, they start to lose control of them. Uh, and that has really significant consequences for... A lot of things, but including the oil production uh, subsystem. Right, the two subsystems come apart, and in particular, it gets much harder for you know countries that are in what we now call the global north um, to you know select the leaders of countries or polities in the global south. Right, that they used to have them as colonies, and they could just install somebody as a, a a regent or a king or a you know. Uh, Viceroy or whatever it is, Uh, and now they can't do that. Uh, And uh, they also used to be able to be quite happy to assassinate people or remove them from the throne. And we still see some of that, uh, but it's a lot rarer, right? And even for non-colonial powers like the United States, uh, it still happens, but it's a lot rarer. Uh, and so, yes, we can point to some cases where the US has tried to do that, but it's much, much rarer and much harder. Uh, it's, it's not seen as legitimate statecraft anymore to go around shooting um, uh, you know, heads of state in the global South. And so that means that the instruments of coercion that the, the Anglo-American powers have to, to hold, this system of oil production together uh, have suddenly eroded at the bottom, right? So now they don't have the sort of stick of being able to say, you will do what we say, or we will remove you from power. And without that stick, then the only thing that keeps the oil system going in the fifties and sixties for a while is that uh, there's some economic benefits, and there's there's uh, there's too much oil in the world, right? There's a, there's so much supply that um, you, the the colonies, the petrostates that are producing this oil, think okay, we're, we're just going to play ball, uh, and um, they can't see a way to effectively transition. But in the '70s, you get a real shift, right? And this is where we're going with the. Um, in the early 1970s, the global market for oil tightens up because demand has caught up. The the adaptation of the car worldwide has just risen so fast that now there's a huge demand for oil and there's not enough uh, supply. And uh, the members of OPEC say, aha, our moment has arrived. Now we're going to nationalize and there's nothing that the Anglo-American companies can do about it. And so you, what what was this cartel of seven com, uh, Anglo-American companies known as the Seven Sisters? We call them now, you know, Exxon, Mobil, and Chevron, and BP and Shell. Those were back then seven companies that really controlled the world uh, market for oil. Uh, they were disrupted in the 1970s and told more or less to go home and that it would be the national oil companies like Saudi Aramco and PDVSA in Venezuela and the Iranian National Oil Company uh, that would be the big producers and the big economic beneficiaries of their oil sector. Uh, And so that's where you get this this huge shift in 1973, which causes the, the 73 oil crisis.
0: Something that I found so fascinating was how what happened in 1973, the sort of run up to this was 20 years in the making. You talk about uh, what you describe as a transnational group of anti-colonial elites. Uh, and it, it's a group of, of several men, uh, leadership of, of various countries like Venezuela, Iran, Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, Libya, Egypt, Brazil, so on and so forth. Um, and I was wondering if you could just talk a, l- a little bit about these people, uh, you know, maybe, you know, what the work that they did and the sort of thinking that they had as a, re- as a <laughs> reaction to the Seven Sisters and um, this kind of groundwork that they laid for, for OPEC.
1: Yes. And so you do have this group uh, of anti-colonial elites in lots of countries in the Global South. Uh, But the ones who are in petrostates are in some sense the most successful because what they're looking for is economic and what, in their own words, an economic sequel to decolonization. They want control of their own economies, because right now they feel like, okay, we got political independence, but we're still tied to these economic masters who are in, you know, in the global north. Uh, And so um, you have kind of idealists in Venezuela and Saudi Arabia, these two men, um, Perez Alfonso uh, uh, and uh, uh, Abdullah Tureki is the guy in Saudi Arabia, they get together and um, they what they want is to make OPEC a cartel that's equivalent to the Texas Railroad Commission, which is what their original inspiration comes from, an American idea, right? So uh, it's funny now in the 21st century we hear all these American politicians calling OPEC, you know, this sort of anti-American horrible institution. Well, guess what? They got the idea from the Texas Railroad Commission uh, as uh, an organization that could control the price of oil uh, and allow them to extract the most rents uh, that they possibly could. Um, and so they worked together in, and they found OPEC in 1960, but at the time, you know, the idea of how OPEC could work together, it's, it's the market conditions aren't there for them to work. And so the original founders, Tariki and, and Alfonso, get discouraged and sort of give up on OPEC a couple of years later. Uh, but what they don't know is that they're they've succeeded and the real success isn't going to show until the 1970s when the market conditions change and allow OPEC members to nationalize the oil um, sectors and you know raise the price uh, of oil.
0: Why is it that you focus on this event and why why in your mind is is this oil crisis so crucial for, how you are rethinking international relations theory?
1: Yeah, so uh, part of it is when we think about international order, um, we often reach back to moments like you know Athens versus Sparta in in Thucydides' world, right? Or uh, or the loss of British hegemony, like what did that mean for uh, international order? And so American theorists who are confronted with this idea of a rising China and a declining or relative decline of of the US, reach for those kinds of analogies. And my point is to say, actually, you know, there's we can learn something from those uh, analogies, but they're pretty strained analogies, right? A lot has changed since ancient Athens. And so we might do better by looking to our own country, just a few decades ago, experiencing relative decline in the 1970s, and the loss of, you know, some uh, some instruments of power in a particular issue area, namely oil, as a uh, and and think about how that might affect other issue areas um, in in the 21st century, and so so the point. Uh, coming back to where we started about hegemony and the sort of the theories of change of international order is to say, actually, instead of one hegemon that is fully in control of everything, right? And has like dominance in all possible areas of international relations, whether it's the, the, the biggest economy or the strongest military or control over all capital flows and natural resource flows. Instead, we should think about in the real world, a hegemon uh, is likely to be partially in control, right? That it has, you know, dominance in some, but not all of those areas. And so in the 21st century, we might imagine that right now the U.S. is, you know, in char- it still has the largest and most powerful military, but it is losing control of other issue areas. And you can see how China is surging ahead in some specific areas and not others. And so to understand what the political dynamics of that looks like, why don't we look back to the 1970s and see exactly where this happened before in a different issue area, in oil, and try to learn what that tells us for uh, the 21st century. And the basic lessons here is that um, the durable agreements that form international order, they, they endure, under some conditions and they collapse under others. And so we need to l- learn what those conditions are so that we know what to expect in the 21st century. You
0: know, another thing that you you talk about that's obviously, you know, tightly related to this is this this notion of, of oil for security. Um, if maybe I, I, you know, was sort of misinterpreting what some of part of your argument is, but, you know, I, I thought it was interesting that you were, seemed to be implying that Um, or seem to be arguing that the rising presence of U.S. military was not an example of like increasing U.S. power and hegemony, but was actually like a uh, almost coming out of a weakness of the fact that the U.S. didn't have access to oil in the same way. Um, So, you know, sometimes when we think, oh, the U.S. military is everywhere, they must be more powerful, that almost in a sense, the U.S. Army military having greater presence in other places is a sign of weakness. Does that make sense? Or is that what you're, you're kind of arguing?
1: So in a sense, but I would put it a little differently. I would say that in the period from 1945 to about 70, what the US was able to do was uh, was delegate. They, they essentially allowed Britain, not allowed, uh, Britain had already been the, the sort of regional hegemon in in the, the Middle East and wanted to continue doing it uh, until they found that they just couldn't anymore. They kind of couldn't afford it and couldn't couldn't keep it up. Uh, and so the United States was really quite happy with that arrangement. Uh, um, and so stayed out of the Middle East to, uh, not to an absolute degree, but to a large degree. They, they um, were happy with the, the British sort of paying the costs of providing military security to the Persian Gulf region. Until, um, you know, sort of famously in 1968, the Brit- British announced you know, we're leaving. Uh, and three years later, 1971, they did leave, right, the, the military left, um, the British military left. And that created something of a power vacuum in the 1970s, uh, it, up to the point where you get in 1979, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan. And for that, um, that was a real kind of wake up moment for Um, the U.S. national security apparatus because there was real concern that it it might go farther, right? The Soviet Soviet Union might think about, well, maybe we could get a stranglehold on the whole oil producing region that is the foundation for the U.S.-led West. Uh, And so the Carter doctrine uh, that Jimmy Carter announced was, look, we more or less, I'm paraphrasing here, is that we will regard any attack uh, by the Soviet Union or anyone else uh, on countries in the Persian Gulf as an attack on the vital interests of the United States of America. And by implication, we will respond with force, right? This is a, this is our turf, is what we were declaring there. Uh, and so, and then the military presence from then on, as you say, has gone upwards rather than downwards. Uh, and and um, of course, some of that uh, is really regrettable. I think, uh, like a lot of other people, I very much regret uh, the U.S. decision to go to war in Iraq in 2003. I think that was a disastrous decision. Um, so it was not all good. By, I'm not saying that by any means, but it is. it comes out of this idea that the U.S. would provide security for um, an oil-providing region And over time, what's ironic, actually, is that it's not really the US that needed the oil from the Persian Gulf all that much. The US was getting most most of its oil throughout this period from either its own production or from Western hemisphere producers like Canada, Venezuela, Mexico, but they were getting some. The US is still getting or was getting some uh, Persian Gulf um, oil, but Uh, its allies, right? So U.S. allies in Europe and Japan in particular were dependent on Persian Gulf oil. And so the U.S. understood that it needed to provide military production to Persian Gulf so that the economies of Europe and Japan didn't fall apart uh, on some level. Uh,
0: when When it comes to oil today, people obviously are always interested in this question of climate change and you, you, you focus a lot on the issue of climate change uh, in the end of your book. So I was wondering if you could talk about that and uh, the sort of way in which you take subsystems theory and apply it to this this cha- this challenge.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, so I, too, am very worried about climate change. I mean, the first thing that has to be said about oil is that I think in... You know, even though I am a huge climate hawk and I want us to act as aggressively as we can to uh, to avoid the worst uh, outcomes of climate change. um, The reality is that we are too hooked on oil to get off of it uh, in the near term, Uh, that even if we were selling a lot more electric vehicles uh, than we are today. the 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 rate of turnover of our capital that is dependent on oil, like say car fleets, we don't buy new cars every year. We buy them once every ten or fifteen years, and so even if we were selling one hundred percent new cars, were electric vehicles, it would still take you know a decade or more to f- to change over our. Um, our transportation fleet uh, to a, a non-oil source, and by the way, we are nowhere close to selling all cars, uh, all new cars as electric vehicles, right? So this is going to take decades. And the 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 point here is to think of oil as declining over a period of you know thirty to forty or fifty years, maybe sixty years, uh, and um, that's that's comes out of the sort of economics of oil and energy. Um, the, the environmental imperative, of course, is to get off of oil much faster than that. Uh, and uh, the implication that we'll still be consuming significant amounts of oil 60 years from now uh, are, are terrifying. Uh, and so there's a real tension here uh, and that that is true. Um, but um, yeah, so I guess the, the first point is to say, look, oil politics is going to be a, a big part of our, our future, even in an age of significant climate change. Having said that, uh, I do think that um, the, the subsystems theory that I develop around how international order works can tell us something about what we need to make international order over climate change work. Um, and we can see when governing arrangements in oil have endured, they've typically endured when uh, those arrangements provide benefits to the, the people that are participating in them, and when there's someone powerful who can wield a stick um, to, to apply punishments when people aren't complying with uh, the order as it's set up. Those are the kind of two key variables. And in uh, the way we're thinking about climate change right now, say with the Paris Agreement. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't meet those conditions very well. The Paris Agreement really doesn't have an enforcement mechanism at all. Uh, And so we have a very weak form of international order. And we need to be thinking about setting up additional kinds of governing arrangements that are going to have real teeth to them, as opposed to just making the Paris Agreement our one big hope and that it will solve everything. I just don't think it will. I'm not saying that the Paris Agreement is useless. I think it's it's worth doing and it, it provides some good benefits in terms of ratcheting up norms and goals and uh, sharing some lessons on all of these sort of soft things that are helpful uh, in international politics. But we also need some agreements that have some real teeth to them. And to my mind, the two areas that have the biggest um, potential for generating agreements that have real teeth on uh, to them are the trade system and the finance uh, area, right? So that we can get um, climate, pro-climate policy in trade and pro-climate tr- uh, policy in finance. And so just very briefly, what I mean by that in the trade area is uh, I'm talking about potentially carbon tariffs, so that countries... Um, that are um, leaders, like Europe right now, as leader on, on the climate change area, are understandably moving towards wanting to have a carbon border adjustment mechanism. This is a proposal at the EU right now, which are, in essence, those are carbon tariffs. Uh, a carbon border adjustment mechanism um, says that, you know, if we're going to be importing steel or glass or, you know, other kind of dirty, uh, high polluting products from um, areas outside of the EU, like Turkey or Russia or uh, India, um, then those products are gonna have to pay a tariff that is equivalent to the environmental costs that producers inside the EU face, uh, because that's the only way the EU producers will clean up their act, right? The whole idea of getting EU steel manufacturers to be you know low carbon steel production um, that's going to be costly that's going to raise their manufacturing costs and they won't do it if that puts them at a competitive competitive disadvantage to a bunch of producers in the dirty parts of the world that aren't abiding by this and so the only way to to make that work really is to create carbon tariffs um, to allow Uh, that kind of thing to happen right so that that's where you start to see agreements that have real teeth and ideally what we want is not just for the EU to have carbon tariffs but for there to be some sort of multilateral system so that the countries that are the climate leaders and I hope the US will join that uh, club uh, will have carbon tariffs uh, to distinguish them from and to protect them against uh, the countries that are climate laggers, that are not cleaning up their manufacturing sectors uh, I've said enough there so uh, there's lots more to say but I'll say enough
0: you you also uh, mentioned finance and I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit to that as well how you see uh, the finance sector as participating in in this
1: yeah that's much harder and I think actually many smart people are working on that uh, and I uh, I think we are as a as a a group, as a planet, we are less far along in what our thinking is. But I think ultimately what we wanna do um, is to provide, um, first of all, kind of standards and incentives for corporations to report how much um, you know, uh, emissions they're, they're making, uh, to impose some costs, right? So the, we want to impose a cost of capital on projects that are gonna be heavily polluting, uh, and, uh, and or um, reduce the cost of capital for greener projects. right? And there's lots of different ways of imagining that we might do that, whether that's sort of through ESG mechanisms or through central bank actions or you know, different kinds of premiums, uh, uh, borrowing premiums or lending capital requirements that we might tweak. But the basic idea is to change the actual cost of capital for green projects versus not green projects. Uh, and so that we can favor the ones that will help us move towards a decarbonized global economy. And the the urgency with which we must do that, uh, I feel on, on almost daily basis that, I mean, look, if we don't do this, if we get this wrong, we are going to face really catastrophic consequences 30 or 40 years down the road and to make the change we have to start now Uh, we can't you know push this any farther along as we've been doing sort of kicking the can down the road and not grappling with the problem
0: something i always like to ask is you know if there's anything that's happened any recent events obviously there's been a lot of recent events (laughs) and uh or, or you know anything any responses uh, to what you've written that have either confirmed some of, in your view, confirmed some of the things that you wrote or made you rethink some of your conclusions?
1: Yeah, so one thing that I've been asked a lot about is the the war in Ukraine uh, recently. And uh, to my mind, um, part of it is a great illustration of what I mean by punishments for non-compliance, right? So uh, again, when I think about why does international order change, There's two things that matter. One is uh, the benefits uh, of uh, the order uh, and how big are the benefits to the people that are participating uh, in the order. Uh, And the second one is punishments for non-compliance. Like, is there somebody who's willing to, willing and able to kind of wield a stick uh, and uh, uh, punish people who are not complying with the governing arrangements? And I see the, the actions by the United States and Europe uh, with regard to sanctions on Russia uh, for its invasion in Ukraine as a great illustration of what punishments for noncompliance really looks like in practice, right? So the order in this case is the UN, you know, article one or two, whatever it is, uh, that says countries will not go to war for uh, territorial gain anymore. And then Russia violates that order, uh, goes in, uh, in, uh, into a war of conquest over Ukraine, uh, and uh, the West says, no, you will not do that. And we will punish you for it. Now it gets tricky because uh, Russia is not just any country. This is the country with the largest nuclear arsenal on, on the planet. And so punishments have to you know, fit the situation. Uh, it's not like um, the US can just push back as they did say in 1990 uh, when Iraq uh, didn't comply with the international order. Uh, in that case, the U.S. organized a military coalition and, and fought the Iraqis back. Right In the situation with Ukraine, uh, it's economic tools because we're trying to avoid World War Three. Uh, and um, of course, that story doesn't have an ending yet. So we'll see how it all plays out. Um, but that part of it, I think, is really important. And there what's interesting, I guess, is that Um, even though I've emphasized in the book about how subsystems have this kind of quasi-independence from each other, right, where sometimes one can change and the other one not change at the same time, Um, in this case where you get, you know, a a big shift in the territorial uh, sovereignty subsystem around uh, Ukraine, uh, it has ripple effects into other subsystems. And so Uh, In particular, in the energy, uh, uh, European energy scene, we're seeing, you know, a ban on Russian coal, a proposed ban on Russian oil, and potentially, um, you know, something in natural gas as well, although it's not clear sort of who will be the initiator and the person who suffers the most pain from any kind of cutoff uh, uh, of natural gas from Russia to to Europe. Uh, So... Uh, subsystems do interact uh, and they sometimes, you know, a, sh- a shock in one of them has ripple effects into the others.
0: So uh, Jeff, before we uh, wrap this up, the first, the last question I'd like to ask is if you're working on anything new, uh, anything related to this or something completely different.
1: Yeah, thanks uh, for asking. I am working on something that's sort of an extension to the book and thinking about how these oil for security arrangements that the US has with the, the Persian Gulf, how those might change in an age of, of climate change, right? And so if we're serious about getting off of oil, uh, and as I've said, that that's a process that will take quite a long time, but even if, if it takes decades, the fact that we are anticipating now that we might get off of oil that kind of undermines the whole idea of an oil for security arrangement. Uh, and so um, uh, with the time horizon of like, okay, this might end in a couple of decades, actors already now are starting to think about, well, what's what, what does this mean for geopolitics? And so um, there's some indication that, you know, the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates are starting to think about, you know, should we be getting, a shift of political alignment to some other great power that can protect us like China, or should we develop our own military capacity? And we're seeing some some signs of that as well in Saudi Arabia. And so it's not clear how this is gonna play out, but that's part of what I'm working on is trying to learn from the history of those oil for security arrangements. Uh, And uh, if we wanna understand how climate change is gonna affect geopolitics, we should start by understanding how fossil fuels have already affected geopolitics uh, and therefore getting rid of those fossil fuels you know, might unwind those, those consequences. So that's what I'm working on.
0: That sounds equally interesting. And you know, when, when you produce something, we'd love to have you on again. Well, thank oh. you so much, Jeff.
1: Uh, thank you, Caleb. It's uh, great talking with you. I really appreciate the opportunity.